0: This is the Intergalactic Peace Coalition, Precious. It's a podcast, it is, by the fans, for the fans, they say. Precious has never heard of fans before. Golem! got 'em. It's hosted by filthy hobbits named Ben Hansack. But what about me? What about the Precious? Well, you'll just have to come join us on IPC. your journey end you seek that which would bestow upon you the right to rule the quest to reclaim a homeland and slay a dragon Allow evil to become stronger than
1: us. It is not our fight.
0: It
1: is our fight. What if it's a trap? It's undoubtedly a trap.
0: Such is the nature of evil. In time, all foul things come forth. You will destroy us all. Was that an earthquake? That, my lad, was a dragon.
3: All the galaxies.
2: All for you.
3: Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the Intergalactic Peace Coalition podcast, also known as the IPC. We are broadcasting live right here on channel eleven thirty eight. Yes, we broadcast every single week, like almost every single week, on Friday nights, um, around 10 p.m. Eastern, give or take, sometimes. It doesn't always work out, but we do our best, and we always try to give you guys a great show live, and, and it's completely uncut, uncensored, you hear it all. So if you're ever wondering what the show sounds like before it's edited and put in iTunes, then uh, yeah, come by and check us out, and of course, we, as I said, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, that's where you can find the show after it's live to listen, and uh, we got another awesome episode for you guys tonight, of course, and uh, we're going to be talking more The Hobbit, if you didn't already figure that out, and it's going to be a lot of fun, but before we jump into it, of course, introductions are in order, if you are unfamiliar, my name is Ben, and joining me, as he always does, it is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Zach Arnold,
2: Zach... What's going on? Dude, it's been a heck of a week, and I am very excited to be here, but also a little bit tired, not going to lie.
3: <laughs> I hear
1: you. Uh,
2: I, I have probably worked like four or five different jobs this week and watched a couple of different movies, including the one we're talking about tonight, uh-huh. so my sleep schedule's kind of out of whack, and uh, I, I'm running on caffeine and uh, and sugar and, and maybe just a teensy bit of alcohol. Uh, that's to be determined in just a bit. I don't know. Um but I'm I'm excited to be here. Uh we, we we discussed the first Hobbit film last week, an unexpected journey, so we're back this week for the desolation of Smaug, the mm-hmm. middle of this trilogy, and uh I'm I'm very, very excited to talk about this one, mostly because the little brief blurb that I gave led to some very interesting discussions between the two of us on social media yes. in the middle of the week um i gave some initial thoughts and then you were like well looks like i'm gonna be the one defending the film this week and i was like <laughs> hold up hold up hold up i've still got some good not things to say so about this movie
3: fast.
2: i've got some good things to say about this movie but i've got some other things that may not be as nice to say and it's gonna make for hopefully a, a really good discussion so i'm looking forward to it yeah and for the record
3: i have less mean things to say about this episode and more Good things to say about this movie, I should say, and so it's going to be an interesting discussion to see where we land on it. But yes, I really enjoyed this one, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. But yeah, before we, you and me. before we jump into that, let's let's break the ice a little bit because sure. you know there is a little bit of ice floating around in here for some reason, um, and let's talk about a little bit of news because hey, there has here's
2: the ice right here, buddy. It's in my drink with all that caffeine. There you go. There you go.
3: We got the ice. We're going to break it with this little bit of news that comes from the Marvel side of the spectrum. And uh, we've been hearing a lot about this Black Widow movie. And I've kind of been like... I've been like... I didn't know it was actually a thing. I know people were campaigning for it for a long, long time. And then apparently it's happening. And apparently Scarlett Johansson is going to get $15 million to play Black widow in her own movie which is uh, you know it's uh, it's gonna be pretty interesting I suppose I mean a rich person getting more money I guess is, is news I guess today
2: but whatever <laughs> well okay so here's here's a little bit of context to, to that whole thing um, this this is a, this is a this is a time where a lot of people on a lot of platforms have been talking about trying to find uh, equal pay for for men and women and it's it's been especially true on the on the big screen. Right. But I mean it's it's kind of across the board as well. It's kind of a universal thing about, you know, women making cents on the dollar compared to men. And so this particular payday is one for the history books. Um 15 million is 10 more million than what Brie Larson is making for Captain Marvel. She's only getting wow. paid 5 million for the Captain Marvel movie. So Johansson's getting three times what Larson is to star in her own movie, and I read a report from I think the Hollywood Reporter that said the fifteen mil that she's getting for this standalone film is equal to the money that uh, Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth got paid for for their roles in Infinity War. There you go. That's just the way it should be. I agree. I completely agree, Uh, and I mean, the other thought that I have on this is that it's about damn time. You know, we've seen a lot about who Black Widow is and and what you know, what kind of things she's capable of, everything from her first appearance in Iron Man 2 all the way up through her different appearances in the Avengers movies, you get a little bit of backstory in Age of Ultron, you see some of her capabilities in Winter Soldier, you know, you you, you get these little tastes and nuances of her character, but, you know, maybe now is, like, the great opportunity to kind of flesh out her character even more, and so... Yeah. I I feel like the timing on this is really good. I feel like the the finances being out in the open is actually a really good thing as far as, you know, becoming more progressive and 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 bigger in that push for equal pay. I am in complete support of of everything that they've done so far, and I'm looking forward to to seeing that finished product, because at this point, Marvel could put out, you know, Disney Marvel could put out a happy Hogan movie and people would go watch it. (laughs) You ain't joking. I mean, I'd watch the hell out of that, but I'm just a big John uh, Favreau fan also, but I'm a big Scarlett Johansson fan as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing what she can do with this, uh, with this film she's being given. Uh, Having, having her in the lead role is definitely something that's overdue in my opinion.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to see what they do with this. Like, I'm not even sure where it's going to be set, what story they're going to tell with her she's been really well developed in the film so far she's been really kind of a fan favorite and I mean unfortunately one of the few female characters in this franchise one of the few big female characters lead characters so you know I guess it's about time she got her own solo film after all the guys have already got their own solo film but uh, you know I should be interested to see like what they do with this how they expand her character because I'm, I'm like I'm wondering like at this point what can they add to her character that hasn't already been kind of, you know, she's been through a lot in these movies, you know, kind of being, you know, kind of in a supporting role. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm curious, like, what what can we learn about this universe? What can we learn about her that we didn't previously know? I know she has a lot of backstory so, you know, with her being from Russia and all this kind of stuff, so, like,
2: it should be interesting. Right, right. See, that's the thing, is I feel like there's an opportunity to kind of continue on the backstory that they gave during Age of Ultron, like the academy that she grew up in. Yeah. I would like to see maybe the antagonist from that academy show up as, like, the primary antagonist in some current event so that she ends up having to face her past. Like, I think... Quite literally. Yeah, literally. Like, a literal... Facing your past, coming of age types like uh, of event for her, and that's what makes the movie more about her. Is it's about her past, it's about her experiences. It's not some cataclysmic event that you know she's joining some other Avengers on. This is her story. We're gonna find out Natasha Romanoff's story. What makes her special? What makes her tick? And the only way you can do that is by having some sort of opponent or antagonist that hits close to home. I don't think there's anything better than the academy she grew up in and the PTSD that she suffered because of it. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's uh, you know, that's definitely a sticking point. Like we really don't aside from that those Age of Ultron flashbacks, we don't know much about her and where she came from. So, right. getting more on that but also pushing the story forward, I would hope I would hope it's something that maybe, you know, is Set in the present, quote unquote present day, maybe after Infinity War, but also something that they can go back and do flashbacks, and then so you keep the story moving forward, even though it's in the past.
2: Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's going to be like strictly set in the past because the, you can't have like a a younger person playing Natasha Romanoff and outshining Scarlett Johansson obviously if you're paying her 15 million dollars the movie needs to be about Scarlett Johansson you know yeah yeah so and, and you it can't it's... go
3: too far into the past with you know her being you know believably you know younger
2: yep yep i i'm with you on that so hopefully it's something that is set like in in the here and the now with opportunities to take a look at what happened to her in the past i am of the opinion and maybe Maybe this is is, is, this is too, just too far out there for, uh, for, for the fans, for the common viewers, but I think it would be really cool to have the flashbacks without an actress playing a young Romanoff. And you just have the flashbacks playing through her eyes. And the actress or actor is the camera. So you're experiencing everything as she experienced it. If she's sitting in a chair, the camera is looking up at the person who is approaching her chair. Yeah. If if Romanov's walking down the hallway, you've got the camera walking down the hallway. It's completely point of view perspective. I would be really, really interested in watching her train, watching her endure the, the pressures of that life, watching her, you know, wake up in a cold sweat from her perspective. I think if there was ever an opportunity to try and pull something like that off, it would be a movie like this with those kinds of flashbacks. That way it's not too over the top. It's not overly used, but anytime you go to a flashback scenario, you're not looking at a young Romanoff. You're looking at life through Romanoff's eyes. Yes, that would be cool. That's just something that I've had in the back of my mind about a particular character. Just, you know, can you try that with somebody? But I think if you're going to have flashbacks, this is the great opportunity to like test that out. Because, let's be honest, virtual reality is upon us. Where you put on those masks and you're basically interacting with your environment and you're seeing things, you're reaching out, you're interacting with things from your point of view. If the cinema is going to move that direction where you are seeing things through your perspective and, and reacting to it from your perspective, then you need something that's going to kind of bridge the gap so that it's not like a direct crossing from one to the next. If you're going to do that, watching scenes and even entire movies from a point of view perspective may be the way to help bridge that gap.
3: I I still contend that that's where we're going, that that's, that's going to be the next step that 3d is kind of a thing now. But I think that's going to be like, we're going to get a movie in VR. Exactly. And, exactly. And you're, you're if that's the that direction experience. that
2: we're going, where we have to, where we have to go to our seats and we put on VR headsets in order to watch the film and experience everything, then you kind of need to help transition that you need to help phase out 3d movies and phase out the traditional viewing format and give the audience something that they've never seen before but still resembles the way you want them to experience film and entertainment through VR. Yeah, I feel like watching things from a character's POV perspective may be the way to do that.
3: Yeah, I, I'm up for anything, and that's that would be that would be an interesting take on them. I don't think they're gonna do that, but no, probably that would, not. Because pr- Marvel not never presumed. takes my ideas. No, well, mean they, mine they. either.
2: They, I I send them hundreds and hundreds of of different ideas and, and emails, and I think, dear
3: Mister Feige, right?
2: Like, I would I, like I to
3: see Adam Warlock do this. No, that,
2: that never mm-hmm. happened. Oh, I would I would settle for Star Lord making fewer penis jokes. <laughs> hey man, we needed to do an open letter.
3: I'll do that because yeah, be nice, less less jokes, please. Exactly. Okay. So exactly. speaking of speaking of that, and speaking of yeah, th- yeah, talking the, about the man that, of the that brought us those you know less than savory jokes, at least for a younger audience. Um, as you know, as you all know by now, James Gunn was fired from Marvel, and yep. he was going to do Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. Three. He had it written, and he was going to direct it. And he was fired, and you all by now should know how that happened. Whatever, not gonna get into that, and we're certainly not gonna get into like why or how he should have or should not have been fired. But the big news this week is that he's been rehired by another studio to make another movie, and it's yeah. actually a sequel to a movie we talked about on this show not too long ago. So. DC, you know, is not in the best shape right now. Let's let's just be honest. They're not in the best shape. They've made a few good movies, a few okay movies, and a few sneakers. Um, and then, so they're coming out with Suicide Squad two, the second one, and apparently James Gunn has signed on with DC and Warner Brothers to write and possibly, keyword possibly, direct the sequel to Suicide Squad. So he's you know he was working on the script he had the script for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 apparently they're going to use that script but he's not directing that movie so he's basically cut ties with Marvel he's moved over to the DC universe and he's going to be working on Suicide Squad 2 at least writing it and so there's been a lot of people going hey you you, you done goofed, disney you know you, you you know you missed out and now he's working for your competition and I'm kind of in the same boat, like, I saw this coming, like, you know, like, regardless, you know, whether you think he should have been fired or not, like, this was only going to happen, James Gunn is a very talented guy, he's gonna find work somewhere else, and I think DC
2: is the place for him to be, I think he really could do something great with this. They, they're probably the only ones that have the budget that could keep up with James Gunn's imagination. Yeah, exactly. like I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Sony could keep up with it. I definitely don't think Lionsgate would be a good place for James Gunn to work. <laughs> I mean, it's it's good for some people that are making the transition from television over to the big screen, but that's about all that Lionsgate's purpose serves. That and uh, over over the top Christian. And you movies see, like when you see Face Lionsgate, it's like,
3: oh, it's one of those movies. Hmm.
2: Yeah, automatically kind of shunned, outcast. I'm just like, ah, okay, I'm done. But you know what I find really funny. I did a quick search. You said that we talked about Suicide Squad not too long ago, right? Uh, Yeah, I was probably a little bit inaccurate there. This this is is about a movie that we talked about not too long ago, the Suicide Squad movie. Um, Do you want to know when that episode was?
3: Of course I do.
2: (laughs) That was episode 119.
3: (laughs) And here we are doing episode 210. (laughs)
2: We are 91 episodes removed from our discussion of Suicide Squad, dude. <laughs> wow.
3: It does not, of course, as as I said, does not feel that long.
2: It doesn't. No, it really doesn't, but when you said that I was like, "Oh, I got to I got to prove him wrong." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, that was I just went and did like a quick search in the Google docs. I just typed in the keyword suicide squad, tried to find out like which episode of the show notes it was on and I was like, "Oh shoot, is it really that long ago?" But yeah, apparently <laughs> 119. It. So, it's it's been a while and We probably need to rehash some old discussions in 2019. There's one particular franchise that uh, we need to be talking about in preparation for the latest installment... Um, it's been a few years since we've we've gone through all of those movies and I think it's high time we bring those back so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who knows maybe 2019 will be kind of like a throwback year where we like revisit some movies that we've discussed previously and maybe like compare and contrast our feelings on them a couple of years later
3: yeah it's like you know you have so many things that you want to cover and so mm-hmm. many movies that that you know I personally haven't seen and I know you haven't seen either. That we want yeah. to cover, but at the same time, like you get to a certain point, like I want to watch that movie again. Like I, don't, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I literally, like I barely have, like that was 200 a hundred something episodes ago. Like I barely have an understanding of like what I said about Suicide Squad. Like, mm-hmm. and there's like going back to our Star Wars episodes. Like I have no idea what I said. Like, like I, I would yeah, be completely that happened new in 2015, dude. Yeah. Like we did that leading up to The Force Awakens. We're now 4 movies into the new Star Wars franchise. Like that's crazy.
2: Yep. Yep. I did a little uh a little backtracking, like looking at when Episode 9 releases and what we would have to do in order to talk about all of the movies, like all the Star Wars movies leading up to it, and our discussion would take us all the way back to like October. Wow. If we were to do that. Maybe. So I mean that's a that's a lot of conversations to be had about Star Wars. But, you know what? You're right. We we talked about them way back in 2015 and it's going to be 2019. I think 4 years is enough time of separation to go back and revisit certain films, especially if they're classics like Star Wars. Yeah, of yeah, totally. So, you uh you listeners may have just gotten a little taste of what's to come in 2019 among some other movies that are coming out and maybe some other franchises that we haven't touched on yet. There's a lot to look forward to in 2019, I'll, I'll put it that way. Oh yeah. Looking forward uh, to. It. But there's a lot to look forward to tonight unless you got any other thoughts on on James Gunn. I'm I'm totally in favor of him working with DC. I think the whole misfit characters idea is very similar to what he did with the Guardians of the Galaxy. I think he can take those misfits from the Suicide Squad and turn it into something pretty awesome.
3: Yeah, I know some people, you know, are not the biggest fans of the Guardian's humor. And, you know, I I, I wouldn't... I would not be in favor of James Gunn just Guardians of the Galaxy-ifying, like, Suicide Squad. Like, but I, I think that he has more range than that. That's not the only thing he can do. And I think, I mean, he has a lot of horror roots. He has a lot of, you know, he's done a lot of different things. So, I think doing a different spin but taking his kind of style and putting it to that like I, I don't know I think he could do some really great stuff with it with being that Suicide Squad was a from what I can remember kind of a a man movie like it wasn't terrible but it also wasn't as great as it could have been so like I think taking from that and going you know you know what could he do with that um, and I've also heard there was another thing and I don't know if this is true or not but Someone said that this is possibly a completely different take on that franchise. Like, this could be, like, a reboot of sorts, which is crazy to think about.
2: Well, I mean, some of the characters died. That's why they're called the Suicide Squad. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I don't maybe... see why they would need a reboot,
3: though. Like, just, you can start over and go, okay, this is a continuation, but it also, like, it's a fresh start. And you've got some of the old characters, you've got some new characters. You don't have to bring everyone back because, you know... There's you could have a completely new different roster of characters as said a few years later
2: or whatever still tie it in with the d c e u yeah, yeah, I can see that either way I'd be really interested to see what they could do with gun at the helm
3: yeah i'm i I'm, I'm I'm rooting for James Gunn, I think he's brilliant um, and I think he's got a lot left, and so you know he may be done with guardians, he may be done with marble, but I think we've got a lot of great James Gunn superhero or otherwise movies
2: um to
3: look forward to over the next many years. You
2: know what I'd like to see him do? I'd like to see him do a supernatural thriller type film.
3: That would be cool. I think
2: I think I think he's got the range to do something like that. He could totally pull something like that off.
3: Yeah, I I I'd, I'd be down for anything. Like I I love the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Those I mean those I've mean, talked about it before how those are both of those movies are up there for me, like, as some of my favorite movies ever. So, like, he's he's got my money wherever he goes.
2: Well, hopefully it won't be too long before we get a, a date or an official announcement or maybe a, a casting decision or something like that from that movie. But cool. uh, for now, it's just a rumor, but a very pleasant one. If it proves true, that could end up being one of the best movies of the DCEU, potentially.
3: Could be. You got I mean, I think I think at least it'll have a solid script. I think that's the basis for most movies is I think James Gunn, like you can you can criticize the Guardians movies, but I think for the most part they're both of their scripts are really solid. Um and really great characterization, so I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to it.
2: You and me both, man. You and me both
3: Alright, I suppose it is now time to get into our discussion topic tonight.
2: Oh, do we have to? I suppose. I suppose. Do we actually have to talk about what we said we were going to talk about on this show? I guess. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to this because I really, no, dude.
3: I no, really freaking enjoyed this movie. I can't say that enough. Like, I, 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 I think this may be my favorite Lord of the Rings movie thus far. I know that's saying a lot, and I know a lot of people like any, I hate. anything
2: from Middle Earth at all. I think so.
3: Honestly. Wow. Honestly, I know that may be blasphemy for uh, L O T R fans, but I I like Desolation of Smog a lot. Smog, I keep saying it wrong. Smaug. 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 That dragon was, Sh- is a badass.
2: Nah, no, for real. Well, I mean, go go ahead, man. I you have the floor. Give us your your thoughts and impressions after seeing it for the very first time.
3: Well, okay, so I I, I just I think. It took a lot of my criticisms for the first movie and just threw them in the trash and just actually, like, I, I really enjoyed the characterizations of the characters and it's a great sequel. And, I, and one thing I love about sequels is that they, it's not about, I mean, one of the, I would say, one of the lower points or one of the drawbacks to An Unexpected Journey is it takes a while to get going. You spend 45 minutes at, you know, in Hobbinton, or or the Shire. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I love the Shire, but, you know, that's not where the adventure is. And I'm, you know, after a lot of time there, you want to get going. Whereas this movie starts right off, they're on the run, they're being chased by who knows what, and you're just into the story. And immediately, the characters start standing out more. The dwarves, I think, were much better... Just you understood where they're coming from. They did interesting things with them. They split them up. They did, you know, you know, p- part way. You have some of them staying behind in Lake Town. Others going to actually to the mountain. Like that's interesting. Not having all of them just grouped up and fighting. You have several of them have standout moments. They're actually given stuff to do other than just kind of stand around and be, you know, just just props or whatever. Like they're actually given, you know, good characterization. I appreciated that. Um, and you're also past the idea that, you know, Bilbo is not is respected. He is, and he's being more of a badass, and he's, he's kind of doing stuff. And that's interesting. And Smaug is amazing. Like, how can you not love a giant, talking, evil, badass dragon? Like, it's amazing, and I was so looking forward to that, and it d- definitely uh, met and exceeded my ex- expectations, but... It just, it really, it did a lot for me for this movie. It it expanded this universe. It went. It did all the great sequel things. And then gave you a magnificent, tantalizing, infuriating cliffhanger at the end. So, I really, from start to beginning, from start to end, start to beginning, whatever.
2: Start to beginning, and also empezar. From start (laughs) to end, I loved Desolation of Smaug. So speaking of end, what did you think of that ending? I,
3: it's, it's, it's funny. I did the same thing that I've done with a lot of movies, which is I go, I, you know, certain things are coming. Like I I know he's going to attack Lake town. They're going to have a big showdown with him. But like you get to the last 20 minutes is like, you're looking at your watch going, wait a minute. this, this They can't, they can't fit all this into the next few minutes. They can't, they can't possibly defeat Smaug in the next five minutes. And they don't, and he flies off, and it's just like holy crap! Like, and just the whole the way—I mean, Smaug himself is just this—he's just so un- this unstoppable force. And I love how they characterize him. And Benedict Cumberbatch is amazing as always. Maybe maybe oh, my yeah. my favorite uh, Cumberbatch character thus far. Um, and just—but have you watched Sherlock? Well, no. <laughs>
2: Okay, sit down, son. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. I'll take that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I, I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm actually rather in agreement with you. Smaug is probably one of the best parts of the of the movie because mm-hmm. they make you they make you wait and you only see like a part of him at the very, very end of the first movie, and then you're like more than halfway done with the second movie, going, where the hell is the dragon, like. The anticipation just leaves you on, like, the edge of your seat, wondering when you're going to see him, how much of him you're going to see, and they just make it so impressive. And the throne room as well, just filled with piles and piles of gold. Like, yeah. goodness, it's, it's a lot to take in. It's really, really a lot to take in. And um, the sense of scale that they put into that, too.
3: Like, yes. you know, you know Bilbo is small, but he's not that small. And when they show Smaug, he is gargantuan. Like, it's hard to fathom how large he is. And within this giant cavern, like, it's just, like, they do such a good job. And the CGI
2: is phenomenal. Like, he looks great. So, on that note... I'm gonna I'm gonna continue this dragon discussion, but shift gears just a little bit for a minute, Certainly. for like a, a little comparison contest type thing. Um, this is not the only dragon in the business, if you take my meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some dragons in the TV series Game of Thrones as well. So I've heard, very very popular. Um, Very integral to one of the main characters in their pursuit of the Iron Throne. And uh, I really feel like there was a bit of an arms race when it comes to the presentation of dragons back in the the early 2010s. Because you first see the dragons at the end of season one. In Game of Thrones, they, like, hatch from their eggs and they make their first appearance. And the CGI is all right, but it's, like, 2011, so it's not, like, the best CGI you're ever going to see in your life, blah, blah, blah. And then you get, like, the really, really good stuff in Season 7, but that's way after The Desolation of Smaug. So, like, you're kind of in the middle area between meh and amazing in Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And then there's Smaug right in the middle of all that. The Hobbit came out in December of 2013. Desolation of Smaug came out in December of 2013. That was between seasons three and four of Game of Thrones. And so the dragons are still adolescents, if you will. They're still growing up. They're still harnessing their powers. They're still learning how to breathe fire properly. And they're not fully grown by the end of Season 3. At the end of Season 3, the main character who, who owns the dragons um, buys and then frees a slave army, and the master of that army is set ablaze by the biggest of the three dragons. But that dragon is still maybe two or three years old. It's still not fully grown. In this one, in this movie, you've got a full fully grown talking fire breathing behemoth. And I really am of the opinion that what they did with Smaug in 2013 helped set the tone for the way dragons needed to appear in game of Thrones. Mm, Yeah. Like his demeanor, his movements, his flight, uh, the the shape of his mouth, the way that he breathes fire. There's a lot about Smaug that you can definitely sense the similarities between him and the dragons of Game of Thrones. And it's always that whole chicken-or-the-egg concept where they already working on and developing the larger dragons in between seasons. You know, they're going to grow up and be around by season four, where they already working on it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But as far as what viewers had seen up to that point, it was still adolescent dragons in season three and a full grown dragon in this movie. So I don't know. Maybe I'm geeking out and and nerding out over dragons a little bit too much, but (laughs) they're like the medieval dinosaurs. And you know how excited I get over the Jurassic Park movies. And so this is like this is like top programming. This is like top content for me. That's that's honestly one of my favorite parts of this whole movie is the the interaction between Bilbo and Smaug is amazing. It's absolutely amazing, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. We, I'm, I'm getting way off topic here because we're supposed to talk about this movie in chronological order, damn it. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Eh? But I really, really enjoyed. Bilbo and Smaug's interaction, it was fantastic. It was, it was.
3: It's great. It's great. And we'll, we'll, we'll follow up on that. Maybe you'll get to hear some of that later in the show.
2: Ooh, maybe ooh, a little maybe, tease there. A little tease there. But going going back to the top of the movie, uh, I hinted at this at the end of Unexpected Journey. And I'm going to follow it up now that you've seen this movie. I had to bite my tongue because you hadn't seen this film yet. Oh. But, but... After the scene at the Prancing Pony between Gandalf and Thorin... Okay, quick side note. Did you um, did you catch the director's cameo
3: in yes, that scene? I got it rough, but he, he steps out of the corner and takes a bite out of a carrot. I love, I love yes!
2: Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson cameo for the win! That was so fun. It was such a great way to start this movie off. But after that scene at the Prancing Pony, um, you've got... The, the dwarves and, and you know, the, the whole company, essentially, is on the run from Azog and his, and his company. Um, doesn't that strike you as, as just a little odd that you go from, you know, escaping from the Eagles, and you've put a pretty great distance between them at the end of the first movie, and now all of a sudden they're... Back to almost being hunted down by Azog's group, like as soon as this movie starts. That is, that is odd. I didn't think about that until like,
3: now, but like it is, like I guess. I mean, it's it's natural to like want to start the movie. I, I like the fact that the movie starts, you know, kind of in a tense moment where they're trying to. Get no, away. I do too. But it does. not wrong. Doesn't I, make a whole lot of I sense. I do too.
2: I I I'm I'm not I'm not saying that that was that that concept was a bad idea. My qualm my my problem is you had a really climactic fight at the end of the first movie, but it really kind of almost goes for nothing in this movie if you're starting it out with them chasing, you know, and and being in hot pursuit at the beginning of the second one. So this was the point that I was trying to make last week was did you really need that final fight scene at all? If you were going to have them being pursued to start this second movie, you could have just had them on the run at the end of the first movie, and you wouldn't have had to have Azog versus Thorin bringing up his Oaken shield again. Like You wouldn't have needed any of that if this was how you wanted to start the second movie start him out in hot pursuit that's fine you're right It's a great way to start off the movie with some intensity but I, I'm just of the opinion that if that's how you're gonna start the second movie then you didn't really need the big fight scene at the end of the first one
3: yeah I, I can I can definitely see where you're coming from there and I think I will I will go back and kind of counter that by saying that at the end I think it's good to the end of course again you know you have the big showdown between atzog and thorin i think that's a good thing to kind of to end that movie on and you know maybe it could have ended a bit differently where they're kind of on the run and you know they're kind of it seems like they're taken far away from there but at the same time like even if they were they're still on foot azog and his and his guys are still you know on 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 on, on uh, riding so it makes sense that they would eventually catch up to them, and I think just from the standpoint of pacing and trying to add intensity to the movie, I don't know how the the book actually goes, but you know <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, well, I guess we'll get to that, but like I think adding intensity to those scenes, especially in the in the beginning and to the whole movie, to know that like you know emphasizing that. Not only are they do they have a small window to crawl through, quite literally, to get to the mountain and get to there by a certain time. They're also being pursued, which adds even more drama. Um, so I think it works from that standpoint. But it does, you know, it does. It seems it's a bit, it's a bit jerky to keep going back and forth with that between the two movies.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, you mentioned how it went in the book. <laughs> I- I gotta do this. Um I hate to break it to you, but Azog the Defiler is not a very big character in the Hobbit book. Really? The the white warg is mentioned maybe twice in the whole book. Mentioned. <laughs> doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue, doesn't have a whole lot of integral portions, and yet they took that that character and like pulled him out a little bit and like extrapolated him into the big villain character, essentially. So like there, there is a sequence that involves orcs and goblins and a chase scene and the Eagles, like all of that is there, but it's almost like an assembly of the most intimidating creatures of the forest. And they're having some sort of a summit in like a clearing in the woods and it involves the goblins from the mountain and the orcs that have come out of the hills trying to, you know, figure out what their next plan is. They're almost like forming an alliance of sorts, if I remember my book correctly. It's been a while since I've read it. But the the whole point of the, the, the company being in the trees is because they're trying to listen into the conversation while staying out of sight. Mm-hmm. And so it was more of an avoidance technique than it was actually you know um having a fight and and sending down fireballs and that kind of thing. Like they were trying to hide more than anything. And then the eagles do come and take them a part of the way, but they do have to continue the rest of their journey on their own. Yeah. Um I don't know. There's there's just certain there's just certain elements that get minced and twisted just a bit for the sake of storytelling and I get it, but there's also some rather egregious deviations that we're going to get to in a little bit.
3: Well, yeah, but... and, and just with me, a person like me who has literally no knowledge of the book itself, like taking yeah. one book and turning it into three movies, that's an obvious, like they're they're <sighs> making a lot more out of this than there was there. And, and And there is, like, and Peter Jackson actually talked about this. There was a little documentary that I saw where he kind of went into the, the fact that they drew from the appendici of the Lord of the Rings books and drew a lot of inspiration from there. And and again, I have no idea how much stuff is in there or like what like stuff they kind of draw, you know, drew from and like cherry pick some stuff. I know um, I forget her name. Eventually, eventually Lily's character. Is definitely not in the book. Is a new character, and I, you know, just just from from being ignorant, I liked her in the thing. But I understand, like people that, you know, you you have. I mean, you you read the book, and that's what you're expecting, and you don't get that. I get it. Um, you know, it's it's like being I don't know. It's literally being told what the movie's gonna be, and then seeing something different, which is. From my point of view, I'm like, okay, I really don't care, but at the same time, I understand where people are coming from when they're like, uh, you kind of could have been more faithful to the book.
2: Well, I mean, imagine if the the Force Awakens novel had had come out first, and uh, you know, if I if I remember correctly, the 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 novel has certain characters in it that don't end up making it into the movie. Am I correct? I think so. Like don't they don't they talk about the Knights of Ren a bit more? And there's a there's a there's a captain that doesn't make an appearance, and he's kind of become like the stuff of legend now because he was supposed to be in the movie and then he wasn't. Yeah, he they had like a...
3: the the books always go into greater detail. I mean, just naturally speaking, especially with Star Wars novels novelizations in particular, you go, always get more stuff. But uh, yeah, there is some more stuff in there. They don't go into too much detail because I mean, and and it's but at the same time, yeah, you're right.
2: Uh, I don't remember what his name was. It's one of, uh, one of the Knights of Ren? I don't think it was one of the Knights of Ren. I think it was actually the character that was killed by the Knights of Ren in Rey's flashback, and apparently that's like his only appearance in the movie, and if you blink, you miss it.
3: Yeah, he. I think he's called, he's called Clan Leader or something, or leading up to the movie, I remember him saying. I don't remember him getting a name, though. I could be. No, I could have missed that.
2: No, that that's not that's not who I'm thinking of. Then I could have sworn there was like a, a a person of military rank that was like people. People were really excited to see this character show up in the movie, and then he didn't.
3: Oh, you are you mean you mean Constable Zuvio? Zuvio, Zuvio. That's who it is. That's Constable Zuvio. Okay, I know how you made the connection because. Zuvio has the big hat. The dude that gets killed by Kylo Ren in the flashback has a big hat. People thought it was the same character. It's really not someone else. Okay. Zuvio appears for a split second. I've never actually seen him in the movie before, but he's in – he's on Jakku. Um And he had, okay. he had a sequence in the movie that involved Finn, but it was cut out, so you, he's actually not in the movie.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um I got I got my stories twisted just a little bit there then but just imagine imagine zuvio being somebody that you read about in the novel that you are you are waiting to to see in the movie and never shows up imagine your disappointment when one of your favorite sequences when your favorite characters from this new film uh, is is non-existent mm-hmm It's almost like the inverse of that with Toriel in The Hobbit. You know, for some people, they grew up on Tolkien's literature and they enjoyed the story of it so much that when you take that story and you put it on the big screen, you're kind of almost trying to relive your childhood. And then it's almost like that childhood is dashed to a certain degree because you're missing out on the story you hoped for because of the deviations that they took. Yeah. And maybe I'm exaggerating it a bit. I didn't necessarily grow up on Tolkien myself, but I know a lot of people who did. And I know that that's like their biggest complaint with this movie is there's a lot of, there's a lot of fan service. There's, there's a lot of fan service in this movie as far as um, you've got a lot more Gandalf and, and people Obviously, love Surya McKellen. Mm-hmm. You've got more Azog the Defiler because you need that intimidating presence. You, excuse me, all that caffeine in my system is coming back up. It's talking to me. You have Toriel and you have Legolas. Legolas shows up mm-hmm. in this movie. You, you've got certain appearances and certain elements of the story that just don't exist in the book. And while it's good visually, and while there are even certain elements that I'll admit tie things together to The Lord of the Rings better than The Hobbit does in the book. Like, there are certain pieces of that puzzle that make a lot of sense. But there are also other elements that I'm just like, oh god, did we really need that? (laughs) So... We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But I am probably going to be on like the the defense of the deviants in this more often than not. But we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Now, one that I that I did um, that I did really like that I thought was very very accurate was when they uh, when they go into the Mirkwood forest and encounter the spiders.
3: Oh, heck yeah. Because was funny. I started thinking about going into the thing, and you start seeing the webs like, oh, man, it's giant spiders. I know it. I know it's going to be spiders. It's going to be spiders. And then here they come. And it was so great. They are, again, creatures. The creatures, I mean, the special effects of the creatures are so well done in this movie. And those spiders are just terrifying. But also... It's so satisfying to see Bilbo just start chopping through him, <laughs> like, right off the bat.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. So, it's actually it's actually really interesting, because in the book, I actually went and found this. I, golly, where did my book go? I thought I put it at my desk. Uh, oh, crap. It's over on my coffee table. Okay. Oops. Um, I actually went and found that sequence in the book, and it's actually... Almost word for word, like there are sequences where the the, the 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 company gets lost and they end up getting captured by the spiders and there's a whole group of them and Bilbo is the one that ends up helping them out. He lodge he he, he uh, what is it called notches notches his first kill of this expedition by killing one of the spiders and after he does that he realizes that his uh his sting beat the spider's sting because he didn't he didn't end up getting injected with the venom. So because he didn't get stung, he ended up naming his sword Sting. Oh and yeah. So so like in the past movie they were talking about how, you know, swords only have names for the great deeds that they've done or or what have you. And uh now that it's lodged a kill, he is uh is worthy of giving it a name and so he does it in in the book and then you hear the spider in this movie saying ah it stings it stings and it's just it you know it's it's a great storytelling tool to kind of emphasize that he's about to give it its name and it's the same name that frodo uses when he encounters Gollum in lord of the rings yeah and then you know
3: frodo fights uh one of my favorite scenes in in the the original trilogy is uh, mm-hmm. Frodo and Sam versus, actually, it was Sam versus the versus the spider when Frodo is captured. That's a,
2: mm-hmm. oh, I love that versus Shelob. You're right. So I mean, spiders are are a great part of the Lord of the Rings lore, and to have them included in the Merkwood forest was really really cool and really well done. I uh, I. I really, I, I really enjoyed that sequence. I liked where it was going, and then as soon as they get away from the spiders, that's where things go off the rails a little bit. Yeah, they really don't
3: even get away from the spiders. They fall right out of the spider nest into the waiting arms of the elves, who are yep. not bad guys, but they're not friends with the uh, w- with the uh, with the dwarves. So, you know, they're immediately captured and taken i mean they're they're saved but ultimately are captured like criminals <laughs>
2: taken to to the to the elves place yep yep and you get to meet king Thranduil played by the ineffable Lee Pace yep love him like honestly as much as i enjoyed him as Ronan the Accuser i really feel like his role as Thranduil is one of his best as an actor he's great yeah. like he he's is, he is working on solidifying himself among sci-fi lore if you will because um he's been in Guardians of the Galaxy he's he's been in The Lord of the Rings so really all he needs is like one more killer franchise to like solidify himself among the sci-fi gods for me. Uh I oh, may be yeah. missing something that he has been in. I may be forgetting something. I know I say this just about every actor
3: ever, but uh get Lee Pace in a Star Wars movie, please.
2: Get everybody in a Star Wars movie. Get me in a Star Wars yes. movie, please. Yes, that's <laughs> when I can get behind. Me. Oh, uh, that would be that would be funny. That would be that would be cool, but it would be funny. Um, apparently he was in the movie Lincoln. I don't know if that counts. That's more of like a historical fiction. Lincoln. What did, um, Lincoln. that's cool. Let me see. What else was he in? He was in a movie called The Fall back in 06. But yeah, the Hobbit trilogy and Guardians of the Galaxy. And he's going to be in Captain Marvel as, as Ronan. Yeah. he will be, be back. Be, before he goes rogue. So this is like him still working with the, um, uh, oh, with the Kree with Kree civilization before he goes off the rails and joins Thanos. So that should be, that should be interesting. But, um, I, I really, I really like his interaction with the, with the orc that he captures and with, uh, Thorin, where he talks about how there are certain jewels that, that he wants that he would like to acquire and offers, you know, help. Um, and then, Thorin kind of tells him where he can stick it. <laughs> Which is classic Thorin. That's basically what you would expect of him to say, especially considering how bitter he's been towards elves as a species since they refused to help him when his home was overrun. So, you know, he he wasn't too happy about the elves of Rivendell and he's not too happy with the with the wood elves of Mirkwood either. Like he just does not trust them. Yeah. Does not trust them at all. Um in a certain sense, it makes sense to have Legolas in Mirkwood because he has to come from somewhere. You know, I think I think that's the the biggest thing is he's not a part of the Elves of Rivendell, and so he's got to have a place that he lived in before he was a part of the Fellowship. You know, and so to have him here makes sense from a movie and from a, you know, unity of the series kind of perspective. But at the same time, I can't recall a time that he actually showed up in the books. And as much as I love Orlando Bloom, as much as I, I love Legolas as a character, it was very odd seeing him show up. It was like, oh, I'm surprised. But is this an upset surprised? Like I was, I was very unsure what to feel the first time now, I saw so, him show so up the, in this, elves, in the movies.
3: The elves are in the book, but Legolas isn't. I believe so. Wow, and I, I mean, I believe... and, and and from a script point of view, like Legolas' story kind of runs more parallel with the with the uh, with them than the rest of it. So it kind of makes sense that they really didn't deviate from the story, but they kind of added another layer to it basically
2: basically because i think the here here's here's the here's the gap that i'm that i'm missing on and and i have to go back and read the book again but the the gap that i'm finding is there is a sequence where the the company ends up having to escape down the river using barrels yep and the only people they could really be escaping from are the wood elves but it's a very brief interaction. If I remember correctly, it doesn't last for too terribly long because you know, they, they're very untrusting of each other. You know, they're the, the wood elves are very protective of their territory and the dwarves are very, you know, untrusting of elves in general and want to keep going on their mission. So they don't want to stick around for very long. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of brevity to the, to the interaction and they, they, are on their on their way pretty quickly
3: yeah i I will say i will say that i like the barrel sequence i thought it was Mm -hmm. i thought it was really kind of an ingenious way of like they didn't just sneak out like they found a really ingenious way to 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 get them out of the castle and you know out of there and then you have the whole chase scene that sequence went on a bit too long like it well kind of went on and on and on i'm like okay guys like it's time for you to get away (laughs)
2: Okay, well, here's here's the sequence that I feel went a little too long, was the 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 sequence between Keeley and Toriel down in the dungeons. Uh, I'm sorry, I understand that you need to have romance in action flicks these days, but that never happened in the book. Keely did not have that big of a role, Toriel never existed in the book whatsoever, this budding romance that you want to have never happened, never happened, never gonna happen, never will happen, whatever, this love triangle between Toriel and Legolas, and now this apparent, you know, interaction between Keeley and Toriel, it's just like, no, 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 that scene went on way too long, and it just kind of prolonged the interaction with the Wood Elves, which isn't the main part of the story. Everybody wants you to get to the freaking mountain anyway, so <laughs> just get there for crying out loud. You're right. The, the escape was very creative. The, uh, what do you call it, the choreography was ingenious you know, having Ooh, like, them like the running one along point, the
3: banks. The one point where Legolas jumps out and he's jumping on all the heads of the dwarves.
2: like From barrel to barrel, yeah
3: genius. Like, they did, they did some really cool things with that.
2: So those jumps that he does, and then he has one moment where he's, like, sliding along the side of the cliffs. It reminds me of when he uh, slid off of the tusk of the Oliphant in Return of the King. And then he, like, kind of gives Gimli a sly grin, and Gimli looks at him and is like, that still only counts as one. Like, it was very reminiscent of that. It reminded me a lot of that. Which, by the way, did you did you hear the Gimli reference in the in the movie?
3: Um, yeah, yeah, I heard, I, I saw, I noticed that. I I was Captain America sitting over there going, I understood that reference. I understood that reference.
2: Yes, yes. It was it was so brief, but so I good it. because I love you it. know it's, that there's I
3: love that it's it's uh, Legolas going. Well, what is this? What is this ugly? <laughs> what is this ugly thing?
2: That's that's my wee lad Gimli and you're just like oh my gosh Gimli son of gloin and so now you're getting like a little bit more context as to you know where Gimli gets his bravery and his his pride in his people and that kind of thing like you're you're learning more about a character that you thought you couldn't learn anything more about just from that one reference now all of a sudden you've got the context of that's his father like oh man that's cool so the only way that that really would have made any sense was if they had Legolas in the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that kind of reference wouldn't have been good if it was some other character that that was looking on Glowing's person. But when Legolas does it, you're like, oh shoot, you're going to be fighting alongside him in about sixty years. Like you, you kind of. I I personally got like a little too excited. And I, probably, also, but... I love that
3: this sequence kind of gave me a new perspective. Not that I not that I didn't get it in the like watching two towers but I definitely like didn't quite like get the whole picture and in this movie like really outlines like elves and the dwarves do not get along they hate each other for whatever reason no, they, they don't really get along don't. and it gives more context to Gimli's line about I never thought I'd die side by side with an elf like and it's you know it's gives you kind of perspective on like hey things are bad but like People that are literally bitter enemies that are willing to kill each other or capture each other, or imprison each other, are having to work together because of this greater evil.
2: Yep, yep, and that greater evil is explored a little bit in this movie, which we will get to. Yes, in, it is. In, yes, in, in, yes, it is. In just a bit, but going back to the the fight along the rapids, um, I I really. I really did enjoy that sequence. For for whatever reason, even though it did go on a bit, I thought it was something that we'd never seen in Middle-earth before. You know, we don't explore the waterfront all that much. Most everything is fought on the ground. There are some mercenaries that are paid in Return of the King that show up in fleets of boats. But other than that, most everything that happens in Middle-earth happens on the ground. So to have an encounter on the water like that was really different, was really creative, and I liked it. So as as much as I didn't really care for the addition of Toriel, she, Evangeline Lily got to show what a badass she was in that sequence. Yes. You know, she was matching Legolas kill for kill and just mowing down orcs one after one. And it was it was impressive to watch. It was a great display of of teamwork it was a great display of communication because at one point they were like tossing weapons back and forth so that whoever needed it was able to use it at the time and nobody died which was rather impressive you know the i i honestly thought they would take somebody expendable or or somebody that wasn't supposed to be there and be like oh well you know what we're going to take creative liberty and we're going to get rid of somebody but Everybody ended up making it out of there. Everybody ended up surviving and started making their way towards Lake Town, which was, which was probably, like, the, the most important part of the story anyway, getting to Lake Town, getting to the mountains. So um, I'm glad that they kind of used that as a bit of a buffer to let you know, hey, we're phasing out of the woods and we're phasing into the more important aspect of the film. So you better start paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. And
3: you we get introduced to Bard, the bargeman. <laughs> that was funny. I think
2: they call him Bowman in the in the book, but I don't remember. Really?
3: Really? So they change the, they change his name. That's interesting. For
2: some reason Bard the Bowman sounds more familiar than Bargeman. I don't know why. But again, this is another example of this movie doing a great great job with the casting. hmm Oh my gosh. Who plays I... who who plays Bard? I forgot. So Bard is played by the same actor who played Gaston in uh-huh. in the in the live action. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Why did that escape me? It's Luke Evans.
3: Luke Evans. Yeah. Why did did I not think of that?
2: And I think at one point, it was really funny. Somebody did like a side-by-side of Luke Evans from this movie and um, Orlando Bloom from Pirates of the Caribbean. And they're like, Luke Evans being more Orlando Bloom than Orlando Bloom's being right now. Because <laughs> they put so much makeup and a wig on him and stuff that Orlando Bloom didn't even look like himself when he was playing Legolas. So, yeah. I thought...
3: Yeah, um, Legolas looks very shiny. Very shiny yeah, he in does. this movie. He look, looks
2: super young, too. Like, they used some de-aging process on him, but it looked good.
3: Yeah, yeah, he definitely looks sixty years younger. Totally,
2: they did a really good job with that. I mean, elves don't really age a whole whole lot anyway. Because I not. mean, even even Thranduil said like a thousand years is the blink is a blink of an eye in the eyes of an elf or something like that, or or a hundred years maybe. But you know, he was he was threatening to just wait Thorin out, and I was like, oh snap, that is not something Thorin can sit still for, because he's got to get to the mountain by Durin's Day. He's got to get there. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean uh,
3: Thorin. I love the Thorin being, you know, kind of stubborn. You know, saying, you know, he's not going to accept a favor or whatever from the elves because, of course, they're bitter enemies. But you know, and but getting, getting to Bard. I think, like, I, I like I liked him a lot. And also, what's what's the is it Balin? Is Balin the name of the uh, the the dwarf that. Uh, That has like the big white bushy beard.
2: Uh, Balin. Yeah, Balin.
3: Okay, I liked. He had a. This was one of the scenes. The scene he has Balin is trying to convince Bard to help them, and that's a great scene. Just it's like it's a throwaway scene, but at the same time, it's Balin actually doing something and actually like. Mm -hmm. Normally speaking, you could have given that to Thorin. And Thorin could be the one negotiating with him. But it's Balin kind of making up this story saying, oh, we're just travelers or whatever, and he's trying to get him to, to help them. And it was a great to like giving each of these characters more characterization and more more character and actually giving them something that they're specialized in. It's not just, you know, Thorin and his buddies, it's Balin being, you know, really good at something and the other characters doing stuff too and helping them stand out more.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you. I mean, it's, it it gives a better look into the ensemble nature of the group because Thorin is not very tactful. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he says what's on his mind, which can be good in certain circumstances. Uh, It's, it's a great leadership quality to have when you're in a really tense situation, like at the end of the movie. But when you're trying to be tactful and be a negotiator, you need somebody else. Usually that person was Gandalf in the first movie. But, you know, by this time, he's had, a, he's had a vision and is called away to Dol Guldur. And you've got to have somebody else anchoring the negotiations. And Balin steps up to the plate, which was really cool. It was kind of weird the way that they got in with a whole bunch of fish over their heads. But, uh, you know, he he offered to pay double. He offered uh-huh. to find a way to to smuggle him in, and everybody everybody coughed it up uh, after after a little bit of convincing, but they did it. And uh, here's here's where some of the other casting comes in. I mean, uh, Ryan Gage, which he's not a big name actor, but he played the role of Alfred, who's kind of like the 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 henchman of the town, if you will, uh-huh. and he's creepy, dude. <laughs> Alfred yes. is Alfred is creepy, and then the Master of Lake Town is played by no one else but the great British comedian Stephen Fry. Oh, like, yeah, I knew I recognized oh, him. Oh my gosh, the two of them play off of each other really, really well. As like at uh, in the in the Master's quarters, where he realizes that you know there's there's trouble a brewing and there's insurrection mounting and. And who who would dare threaten my authority? And then it just kind of comes to his senses, and he's just like, Bud. Like, he just says it so disdainfully, and I'm like, yes. Ooh, that was good. You're so slimy. I love it. Yeah. Because that's exactly what the, like, the vibe and impression that you get from Lake Town. It's It's dreary. It's older. It's deserted. It's not a happy place. Um, not, people are, people are not happy under the rule of the master of Lake town. Like there's a lot that's just not going for this city and you definitely get that vibe when you get into town. Like that spoken, that, that unspoken nature of how dreary the town is was, was presented beautifully in my opinion.
3: Oh yeah. And it, it definitely like highlights kind of like this dreary place, but also like gives gives Thorne an opportunity and kind of surprisingly he's able to get through to this dude who you think is just evil and who's going to, you know, cause them trouble and you know he actually helps them and actually go hey, you know, there's there's gold in them northern hills. I'm going to help I'm going to go get it and you guys if you help me out you'll you'll have some of it. And you'll you'll profit from it. So it was nice to see Thorne actually be you know, be diplomatic instead of just like, hey, screw you. I'm a dwarf. I hate everybody.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's kind of getting to the point where he realizes he's not going to be able to do this on his own, and he tried to enlist help from Bard, and Bard gave him, like, fishing supplies. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, as, mu- as much as he tried to help, Luke Evans does not have as much influence as the Master of Lake Town. And Thorin wanted access to swords and daggers and shields and armor and things like that. The only person who could give it to him was the Master of Lake Town by opening up the armory. So he kind of double-crossed Bard a little bit and was like, you know what, instead of sneaking around, I'm just gonna announce my presence and see what happens. And promising gold and riches to a poor, broken-down, shoddy town, I mean... You know, you look at the throne room that Smaug sits in. It's just mountains of gold. And so he's sitting there promising these poor, deprived people who get excited over barrels of fish that he's going to be bringing that wealth back to that town. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd get pretty excited over that prospect.
3: Hell yeah. Hell yes. And... You know, you can imagine like living, living in. I mean, that's a that's got to be kind of depressing, but also like super scary, knowing that hey, there's a mountain right there full of gold. I'm poor, <laughs> living in this hellhole, and uh, to get the gold, um, I would upset a dragon, and it would kill me and everyone in the city. Like, and there's always like that danger there of that which is very much apparent in the end of the movie
2: yeah yeah and so uh, I can't help but wonder if there were people from Lake Town who tried to like sneak in and get like a handful of gold and ended up paying the price you know I feel like
3: I feel like he's I mean what else does Smaug have to do but to just you know smell and keep an eye out for intruders so, yeah, well, I
2: mean that's, that's basically it. I mean, he he essentially like like just hangs out in his piles of gold. Like we saw him in this movie, he he kind of just sleeps there. He just hangs out there, and honestly, I'd kind of do that too. You know, I would kind of swim in it just a little bit.
3: Yeah, what the does way he what was, does
2: Smaug want with gold? Does he eat s- it?
3: What I mean is, he just greedy. Is he? I mean, I understand the you know wanting gold. It's pretty. It's it's you know useful, but like, what's he using it for? He's he's
2: a he's a he's a freaking dragon. What do you need all that gold for? So it's a thing apparently um, that's part of dragon lore in general. Like, it's not something that is limited to just uh to just the hobbit franchise or just the lord of the rings or just to middle earth um apparently that's just something that has affected dragons and and has been a part of of dragon lore across the board hmm. because it uh it's it's true in certain legends and myths about dragons it's true in the cs lewis universe um in the book voyage of the dawn treader there's actually a um, a hoard of gold on one of the islands that they travel to, and when you, as a human, end up getting corrupted by the greed and start wearing that gold, it turns you into a dragon.
0: Oh
3: wow!
2: So there, there's some mythos out there that says dragons are actually humans changed by magic over the greed of their lust for gold. Wow And CS Lewis kind of extrapolates on that a little bit in in that particular book. But regardless of whether you're you're a human affected by the the gold that has a curse on it or whatever, dragons are drawn to riches. They are drawn to it like moths to a flame. And for those of you that are listening to this in October of 2018, that's a pretty frickin' hilarious joke because of all the moth memes that are going around the internet right now. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, classic. But dragons are just magnetically drawn to riches, to gold in particular. And for Smaug, this is almost like a status symbol for him. Because... Um, what, what's his name, Thranduil, mm-hmm. mentions to Thorin that he has encountered the dragons from the north. So there's more than just Smaug. There, there's a lot more dragons out there, but Smaug is the only one who has made it this far south, or has dared to venture this far south, and by taking over Erebor the way that he did, he's now one of the richest dragons in Middle-earth. And so not only is he trying to hold it from the dwarves or the humans or whomever would want to take it back from him, but he is also in a position of power, of status, over the other dragons. So one of the things that makes Gandalf worried and and makes other characters in in the story a, a little bit apprehensive is if he stays there too long then that mountain is going to become a war zone for dragons and they're going to end up fighting over it trying to kill smaug so that they can have the riches instead wow i mean
3: smaug himself is freaking unstoppable at least it seems
2: that way like mm-hmm. two
3: dragons man that's that's terrifying
2: Yeah, imagine having two dragons swirling around that mountain, fighting each other mid-flight, almost like a fire-breathing, jousting competition, vying or or jockeying for position for that mountain so that one of them can be one of the richest, most powerful dragons in Middle-earth.
3: Yeah, and, I mean, like, look at the damage that Smaug does. Like, not just breaking into the place, but, like, when he's walking around talk just talking to bilbo like he's you know he'll go up to a pillar he'll just push it over just for the heck of it yeah like he's doing like it's it's amazing the place hasn't you know fallen in on top of him because he just keeps destroying it continually
2: yeah yeah i mean it's it's obvious that the great hall was not built for dragons it was not built with dragons in mind but he's kind of stumbling and bumbling his way around because he's got the freaking gold and the other thing the, the other the other side of that is the 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 enemy that gandalf is facing at dolguldur yeah with the dragons that far north that far away from the war zone they're not really a big threat necessarily not yet anyways but with a dragon this far south should that territory end up getting claimed by the one who would return, it's entirely possible that the same way he convinced mercenaries to fight for him, the same way he convinced Oliphants to go to war for him, if he promised even more riches, and was able to communicate with Smaug the way that Bilbo spoke perfect English to him, it's entirely possible that if the promise of more riches were involved, Smaug could have ended up joining the fight... For Middle Earth, yeah, that's... and I and I don't know, I don't know about you, but that sounds really intimidating.
3: That's, I mean, what happens in the Lord of the Rings movies is super in- intimidating. Like just the amount of stuff that's yes, exactly. thrown, amount of forces. Now throw,
2: now throw, now throw a fire-breathing dragon into that freaking mix, and it seems unstoppable.
3: Yeah, like just like the dragon alone seems more, more. Intimidating than like a massive army that we've seen like m- several times. So, like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and, and that's just the thing about Smaug is that he is super intimidating. He's not, you know, and it's not just like, oh, I mean, you could throw an army at him. You know, that's not going to do anything. Like, and especially when you have the dwarves and they're in there and they're being running around and they're doing stuff. Like, it's, it's insane and it's, it's very, you know, it's very keeps you on edge because you don't know what's going to happen or, you know, how they're going to get out of this because he's just... I mean, he's so big. Like, later on in the movie, there's a point where they're on a bridge and he just walks over them. He doesn't even see them. Like, he's so large and they're so small to him that he doesn't even notice them. Like, that's insane.
2: (laughs) Yep. Yep. It was, oh man, so many good elements of that final fight. So yeah. many good elements. But before we before we get to that, let's, let's talk about how they get in. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, before Bilbo even has this encounter with him, before he even meets this dragon, they've got to find a way into it. And do you remember at the end of the movie where one of the birds kind of flew up to the mountain and was just kind of pecking on one of the rocks, and it was... Echoing throughout the Great Hall and it like woke Smaug up from his sleep and then his eye is like the last thing we see and then it cuts to the credits.
3: Mm, I don't remember that. I think I do remember that, but not vividly. two weeks,
2: That was how they finished the movie was like, it's it's this particular bird. We'll take it as a good omen and that bird ends up making it to the mountains and et cetera, et cetera. Then the dwarves get to the mountain and they're looking for the keyhole can't find it so they get frustrated and decide to start whacking at solid rock with their metal weapons
3: I thought that was really clever that they get there and they're right on time but they miss they seemingly miss their opportunity and
2: yeah they feel like they they feel and they're, they're like just doing
3: they're, those, they're they're so desperate to get in they just start hacking at it and they're like oh, crap, we missed it, let's just go home, and then Bilbo, as anybody would, like, I, I totally relate to Bilbo in that sense, but, like, I'm going to stay here all night until I figure out a way. But he does, just the next few minutes, and it's it's brilliant because it's, like, the last light of Doran's day. Well, you know,
2: the, that's the last light is the moonlight, not the sunlight. Right, and that's one of the cool things about the Hobbit in general and it's it's presented very well in the movies but it's also very very evident throughout the entirety of the book is Bilbo is more of a riddle solver than he is a burglar throughout the course of this entire book very true because he's got the game of riddles that he has with Gollum he solves this riddle that gets them into the mountain And then he plays a game of riddles again with the verbal sparring that he has with Smaug once he gets inside. So I honestly consider him more of a master of riddles than I do a burglar in most cases in this franchise. Just because every time there's some sort of mystery that has to be solved, he's the one that ends up solving it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's... You know, just adds more to his character and adds more to like why he's there to begin with. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's he's the the whole linchpin in making this whole mission work.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's a key part. And going going back, flashing back a little bit to the to the beginning of the movie, um, he mentions to Gandalf right before Gandalf rides off for Dolguldur that he found his courage in the Goblin tunnels and i feel like that was evidenced when they're all trying to close the giant door on beorn the bear's face and rather than his instinct being to hide behind gandalf his instinct is to draw his sword yeah yeah and he you like, can see
3: how much he's changed just in this short period of time that he's not he's not cowering he's like i'm a, i'm going a to freaking cut this thing <laughs>
2: Exactly, exactly. Like killing the warg and then killing the spider, like, he's got he's got some courage to him now. He's he's got some cojones, if you will. Yeah. But, you know, it's not something that that comes naturally to him. It's part of the evolution of his character. And his character definitely changes over the course of the first movie and it definitely continues to evolve over the course of this movie as too. His character development over the course of all three movies, is really, really well done. Martin Freeman, got to give yourself a pat on the back, man. That was fantastic. Oh, he's great.
3: He's so great. Especially in this one.
2: Oh, man. He's great, and his chemistry with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes. The voice of Smaug. Again, stellar casting. Like, everybody that they added, all of the new people that they added, and the people that they brought back, you've got Orlando Bloom in this movie now, you've got Evangeline Lilly in this film now, you've got Lee Pace, you've got Luke Evans, you've got Stephen Fry, you've got Benedict Cumberbatch, like, oh my gosh, this is a perfect movie to do a cast list for the game one, two, three. <laughs> like not even kidding like if i if if I told you Stephen Fry, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Orlando Bloom, you might call b s on that yeah exactly <laughs> like, like this is this is pretty fantastic casting, and the 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 exchange that goes on in in the throne room is just brilliantly done. And it's very easy to tell that the two of them have had interactions before, because Martin Freeman obviously plays uh, uh, Dr. John Watson opposite Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock. So it's almost like you've got a little bit of that Sherlock reunion type thing going on, but in a very different context. Oh, yeah. Which uh, is just uh, so much fun to watch.
3: And now that you're mentioning that, we do have something for the listeners if you want to go ahead and get into that little segment really quick.
2: Yeah, It ties yeah, in right absolutely. with what you're saying. It, it really does, and it, and it probably describes it even better than I possibly could anyway. So, yeah, um, tell you what, let's do that after we take a short break. Okay. We'll come back and we'll jump into that. We're going to talk about the interaction with Smaug and the uh, last third of this movie, but first, we're going to hit the pause button and go to a brief program identification and commercial break. And we'll see you on the flip side with the Quote of the Night and a continued discussion of The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smile.
0: This is IPC. this is obi-wan kenobi and i have drifted into the underworld the star wars underworld i have a bad feeling about this
2: hey y'all this is ben hart here i know y'all just heard me on the ipc talking all things geeky and fun now i'm here to tell y'all about my other podcast it's called the star wars underworld about all things star wars we talk star wars the clone wars star wars the force awakens star wars last jedi rogue one a star wars story and so much more i record it with my friends chris and dominic who are here to tell y'all all about it
3: hello chris hello ben i'm so excited to talk about star wars this week it's fun it's funny we're gonna have a great time Hey guys, I am so nostalgic for mall packaging and I love being on the Star Wars Underworld podcast talking
2: all the latest Star Wars news. Well, now that y'all had a little taste of the show and you know what to expect, you should check out more episodes by going to StarWarsUnderworld.com or by searching for the show on the iTunes, the Apple Podcast, the Google Play, and all sorts of things. And may the force be with y'all. It's a wrap, eh? we are back continuing our discussion of the hobbit the desolation of smaug i'm zach here with ben and we're gonna give you tonight's quote of the night right off the top of this second half of the show we were talking about the interaction between bilbo and smaug and how it kind of resembles some of the stuff between watson and sherlock martin freeman benedict cumberbatch however you want to twist it it's the two of them having some really, really awesome scenes in the throne room of Erebor. And it is tonight's quarter of the Night. Enjoy.
0: Come Don't be shy. Step into the light. There is you. Something you carry. Something made of gold. But far more precious, precious. There you are.
1: Thief in the shadows. I did not come to steal from you the unnecessarily wealthy i merely wanted to gaze upon your magnificence to see
0: if you really were as great as the old tales say i did not believe
1: them and songs fall utterly short of your enormity O Smaug the stupendous
0: do you think flattery will keep
1: you alive
0: no 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 indeed you seem familiar with my name but I don't remember smelling your kind before who
1: overhills my path is led and and
0: through the air i am he who walks unseen impressive what else got that all wrong. Oh, I don't think so, barrel rider. They sent you in here to do their dirty work while they skulk about outside. Truly, you are mistaken, though. Smaug, chiefest and greatest of calamities. You have nice manners. I know the smell and taste of dwarf. No one better. It is the gold. They are drawn to treasure like fines to dead flesh. Did you think I did not know this day would come? (laughs) That a pack of canting gods would come
1: crawling back to the mountains?
3: He's not happy at all.
2: Well, is he ever going to be happy, though?
3: Mm, I, like, I mean, I guess when he's, like, committing genocide, I guess he's kind of happy. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. He's as so amazing good. He's inter- so good, though. Cumberbatch, man. He just
2: nails it. Oh, dude, he really does. And as amazing as that dialogue is, there's one little portion that I wish they had included as well. It was it, it's a very little thing, but it, it was it was a really clever way to kind of like let you know that Smaug was kind of playing along a little bit because it sometimes he, it feels like he's just being a little bit patronizing. But as uh, in, in the book, I'm going to I'm going to read a small excerpt, if I may kind of do like a little double quote of the night sure. just a bit. Um, there are some parts where he's, he's very truthful to the book and he's like, truly the songs and tales fall utterly short of the, of the reality. Oh, Smaug, the chiefest and greatest of calamities, replied Bilbo. Like there's some things in there that are like almost word for word. Um, but then at one point he's, uh, he's, he's giving off more titles and Smaug says, those don't sound so creditable. And then Bilbo replies, I am the friend of bears and the guest of eagles. I am ring winner and luck wearer, and I am barrel rider, he went on. And then Smaug says, That's better, but don't let your imagination run away with you. And uh, then he he said, uh, Lake men, some nasty scheme of those miserable tub trading lake men, or I'm a lizard. "'I haven't been down that way for an age and an age, "'but I will soon alter that. "'Very well, Beryl Rider,' he said aloud. "'Maybe Beryl was your pony's name, and maybe not, "'though it was fat enough. "'You may walk unseen, but you did not walk all the way. "'Let me tell you, I ate six ponies last night.' and I shall catch and eat all the others before long. In return for the excellent meal, I will give you one piece of advice for your good. Don't have anything more to do with dwarves than you can help. <laughs> like, oh, when he calls himself Barrel Rider and he's like, maybe Barrel was the name of your pony, like, he's playing the game, trying to solve the mystery that is Bilbo Baggins. He... As, as, as much as he's never going to admit it, I truly believe that Smaug enjoyed that interaction.
3: Oh, he's... I mean, like, even in the film, he's, he's just playing it up. Like, he's like, totally... He's he knows so exactly what's going on. He smells the dwarves. He knows why Bilbo's there. He's just playing with him. And
2: it's such a fun game to play. <laughs> like, oh, shoot. I got a little too excited there. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to tell you what happened, but uh, that, it happens, uh that, it that 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 was an accident. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um man, see that's one of the things that I find so interesting about this series is there are some things that are almost word for word, you know? There there are some things that are almost Exactly as they are in the book. And that interaction with Smaug is one of them. Mm-hmm. And then there are other things in there that you're just like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. And you like have to hit the pause just a little bit and wonder where did where did that come from? And so that's probably one of the reasons why I have like some confusion with this film, because there are some things that are super consistent, and then there are other things like Doguldur which is extremely inconsistent. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. But before, before I give my thoughts on it, I want to get your thoughts, because essentially Gandalf leaves the company and goes off on his own adventure with Radagast, and they end up back at Dol Guldur, the abandoned fortress, and Gandalf finds a bit more than he bargained for, as the Necromancer is building an army under a a spell of deception, so that nobody knows exactly what's going on, what did you make of the army's numbers? What did you make of Azog assembling this army and the the interaction between Gandalf and the necromancer
3: i It was really cool to kind of see that see Gandalf kind of doing his own thing, not saving the Dwarves, <laughs> just kind of. You know he's off has this very important mission apparently, and then ends up here. And you're, I mean, he's telling you know the guy like you know like don't come after me, whatever. And you know you're you're like oh whatever what's going on here? You know Gandalf's gonna be all right? No, no he's not. No he's not. This is a big deal, and it's Sauron, and it's crazy, and you know just. I mean and then ending the movie with like Gandalf being captured and all this kind of stuff is you know it's it's great it's uh it's it's one of those things where you know you don't expect it and but it just adds to the cliffhanger
2: of this movie well (sighs) uh, okay so I have mixed feelings about this sequence and then we'll talk about the cliffhanger and give final thoughts um Jeez. Sauron needs to be referenced in order to tie in the Lord of the Rings to the Hobbit franchise. Cinematically, you have to let the prequels have some sort of connection to the sequels. And so I get it. I really do. I get it from a cinematic perspective. But here's the deal this book is only 276 pages in length this entire book is 276 pages in length and this sub story about the necromancer being Sauron and assembling an army is just not something that the hobbit has time for It, it really does not allow much time to explore that part of the story Most of what's going on is the pursuit of the Arkenstone. Most of what's going on is what's happening with Smaug. Very, very little gets told of what Gandalf does when he goes off on this adventure. He just kind of goes off, and then he comes back. Most of the storytelling attention is focused on Bilbo and the company. The story's supposed to be about Mr. Baggins. And so this whole sequence with Radagast, with the Necromancer, with Azog they're all characters that maybe get mentioned in the book, but don't get a whole lot of screen time. Don't get a whole lot of airtime. So I feel like as, as the only person between the two of us that has read the book, I need to call that out for the book fans. Mm. You know, it's just not there. It's just not there among the 276 pages that I'm reading from my little leather bound book. It, It just doesn't exist. And as much as I enjoyed watching uh, w- watching Gandalf fight the necromancer and then the flames come out in such a way that it looks like the Eye of Sauron, like, holy smokes, you're kind of getting the realization that this isn't some ordinary human, this isn't some enchanter that can be defeated with, with common good magic, like, this is a darkness that is spreading, and you realize the severity of it, because you recognize what an intimidating villain Sauron is in the other movies. Cinematically, I get it. But from the book, it's probably one of the biggest deviations that they make. So Sauron isn't in the book? I I don't think so. See, it's been a while. It's been a while since I've read the book cover to cover. But this book is not about the fight for Middle-Earth. It's more of a adventure tale following the quest of Bilbo Baggins.
3: Yeah, and that's one of the things about the first movie we kind of talked about was the fact that it was kind of this self-contained, lower-stakes story, but this movie kind of raises those stakes and kind of yeah. says, you know, this is more about... It. And I understand from a... Definitely from a movie standpoint, especially after coming after the Lord of the Rings trilogy... You want to tie it in somehow and also add a bit more of importance to this, that, okay, Sauron is a threat here, and this is coming, Mm -hmm. and why, you know, things don't come to a head for another 60 years, I don't know, but you know, still well,
2: because the, the enemy is still gathering his strength. That kind of thing. Like, yeah. It doesn't
3: I, I don't know. I, I'm gonna wait until i see the next movie, but like yeah, that is a bit yeah. weird. But like I still I like it. I still like the idea that they're addressing that this is an evil, this is a thing that's building for many, many years and it's a part of this universe and that, you know, we're getting hints at it already.
2: Right. No, I, I agree. I I I do think that it's kind of odd that these hordes of orcs are being kept secret in this abandoned fortress for 60 years. Like that is kind of an oddity, Mm -hmm. but there's, there's, there's a few oddities that left that that they're kind of left um, unspoken or unexplained. And that's another one of like the little logical fallacies, like little concerns that I've got. But, like you said, from a movie standpoint, you kind of need to have bigger stakes so that people have a bigger reason to keep watching the franchise. And that's basically what they do at the end of this movie, you know? After their big encounter, after their big fight scene down in the Forges, uh, you know, they, they think they've killed Smaug, and then it turns out they really haven't, and he's just kind of a pissed-off Goldilocks now, essentially. Like, he's... his His... Uh, status quo has definitely been shaken, for one. Like, I don't think he's moved around that much in probably the last hundred years. But at the same time, he's also really, really pissed off and has decided to take out that anger on a much easier-to-hit target than a bunch of dwarves that are running around.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: And he takes off for Lake Town, and you see him flying away. You see Bilbo looking at him, and the very last sequence of this movie leaves you on what i consider to be one of the best cliffhangers i've ever seen where he just sits there going what have we done
3: it's like it's cliff- like the only the one thing that I, the one, one that i think is widely considered to be the greatest cliffhanger of all time is empire strikes back but even oh, of in that movie it's you do get some resolution. You get an ending and you get a kind of a hopeful thing where like, hey, you know, everybody's back and Luke's got a new hand and you know they're gonna go off and they're gonna save Han. It's gonna be everything's gonna be alright. This one literally ends with Bilbo going, What have we done? Like literally right. saying that and like, Okay, this is bad. Like the one guy that can kill the dragon is in jail. Um he's heading for the town. Um, that, like, every, like, Gandalf is useless, he's in a cage somewhere, like, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, and
2: now they're yeah, up a creek without a paddle. there's no, there's no, there's no possibility for a cop-out, like, what happened with the first movie, where, you know, they get captured by the goblins, and then Gandalf just kind of magically shows up out of nowhere, like, there's no chance at him doing that in this movie. Yeah, exactly. There, There's no possibility of, like, saving the day at the last possible second, and he takes off... And, you know, from a book perspective, that's really probably one of the best possible places to end your second movie out of three. Because, like, as a book reader, I know what's going to happen next. But from a cinematic perspective, this is probably, like, one of the most perfect places to drop off the story and then resume it in the next movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, cinematically, this was brilliant storytelling leaving you on the edge of your seat, and when he whispers that, I I very distinctly remember hopping onto Facebook as soon as the movie ended, like I was still sitting in the seats listening to the Ed Sheeran song play at the very end during the credits, Bilbo whispers, what have we done, and then it cuts to the credits, and I use that quote on my Facebook page, and uh, I I said, quote, what have we done, question mark, end quote. And then in a new sentence, I was like, what you've done, Mr. Baggins, is left me waiting an entire year to see the conclusion of this story.
3: <laughs> yeah
2: Like, I think this is probably the first time I have had the opportunity to experience a cliffhanger in the theaters. Yeah. You know? This this may, like, Avengers Infinity War may be like that kind of story for this generation where you have to wait an entire year for the resolution of the story. Mm-hmm. The, the Desolation of Smaug was that story for me. Yeah where I'm left on the edge of my seat wanting to see what happens next and I'm not going to have an opportunity to see it for another year. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're extremely lucky my friend cuz you get to find out this week what happens.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: I had to wait 12 freaking months to figure out how they were going to like resolve this story. And over the course of those 12 months I went back and read the book again just so that I would be fresh and ready for it. Unfortunately, I didn't do that in preparation for uh for this trilogy. Uh-huh. But yeah. man, I it's just this this conversation is just reminding me how much I enjoyed reading this and how much I want to go back and read it again.
3: Yeah. And I I am intrigued now. I'm intrigued that I kind of want f- I kind of want to visit the books. Like I you know, I uh, I don't do a whole lot of reading, but you know, at the same time, you know, this is well, what my Well, but you use uh,
2: you use Audible though, right? Yes, I much prefer audiobooks just because Dude, they, they fit. I am better. sure I am sure the Hobbit is such a classic, I can almost guarantee you that there is an audible of the Hobbit out there somewhere. Oh,
3: I'm I'm sure there's probably multiple ones and I'm sure it's great. Um it just fits better with my lifestyle and stuff like that, so like I would love to maybe listen to that one day.
2: Let's go ahead and get into final thoughts then. Um, we're coming up on on the tail end of this conversation getting ready for our planet score if you've got a rating for this movie out of 10 go ahead and drop it in the chat for us and we will add it to our collective but Ben what are your final thoughts on the Desolation of Smaug and what planet score do you give it
3: my final thought I'll I'll go ahead and give my planet score really quick and I will say I'm going to give this one a I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 I really will I'm gonna go for that. Um, I have you know, some small complaints. I feel like the end sequence, if I had to offer some criticisms, the end sequence where they're in, you know, kind of the where they're kind of trying to evade Smaug and he's they're trying to kill him and cover him in gold eventually, but at the same time, um, there's a bit a bit much going on. There's a lot of stuff going on in that in that sequence that is you know, it could have been reduced a bit, and it's hard to kind of follow. Even though I didn't, like, lose my, you know, understanding of what was happening, it's it's a lot to take in, and, you know, maybe a bit too much going on. A lot a lot of CGI stuff, a lot of stuff like that. It looks great, but at the same time, it's it's a lot to take in at one time. But uh, overall, I, I loved this movie. I really did. I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, Smog was great. I loved the, the characters. I thought, you know, the supporting cast was great, the uh, the way they characterized the dwarves was great, um, it's a great sequel, it moves the story, there's, you know, it's a long movie, but it also it moves, it moves with the story, it starts, you know, at a pretty fast pace and keeps going through through the end, which I really appreciated, and it keeps you engaged, and so... I really, like I said, I really enjoyed this one and I cannot wait for next week. I can't wait to see the resolution to this cliffhanger. Like you said, I'm very spoiled. I only gotta wait a few days.
2: Well, the uh the title of the third movie is kind of revealing. It was originally gonna be called There and Back Again. Yeah, I heard that. But but then they decided to call it something else because it's not a duology, which is kind of what is assumed when you think there and back again. Like, those are the two parts of it. I never would have assumed that. I think they may have overthought it a little bit, because I think I like that name a bit more than the name they gave it, which was the Battle of the Five Armies. Yeah. That's a little too on the nose for me. Like, oh, there's going to be a battle, and there's going to be five armies. Okay. Let's see what happens. But, regardless, it's, it's going to be a very interesting conclusion to the night, uh, to, to this trilogy. And, uh, we got some, some really fun stuff on the flip side of this conversation as well. So be sure to tune into next week's episode and the ensuing episodes. Cause we've got some really, really cool stuff when we finish diving into middle earth, Indeed. but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. It's time for my planet score. Indeed. Um, you know, uh, cinematically, I enjoy this movie as a movie. As a movie fan, I really like it. I do. It's got some great choreography. It's got some great casting. It's got some some great uh, fight scenes and storytelling, character development. It's got a lot of the elements that you look for in the middle movie of a trilogy. And it's got a pretty fantastic cliffhanger. There's a lot of really good things going for this movie. But at the same time, I also can't really forgive all of the deviations that they make from the book. Here's one final zinger point that I'd like to make from the perspective of the book. Smaug takes off for Lake Town in chapter 14. And in my book, that is page 225. My entire book has 276 pages. That means this cliffhanger in this movie happens with 51 pages to go in the entire book Mm. and they're expecting to make a third movie out of 51 pages (laughs) wow that is one of the biggest complaints that i've got that is one of the biggest reasons why i find the stuff that they do in movies two and three to be so different from movie one Movie one is very respectful of the content of the book and does a lot of things to make you feel like you're going on the same adventure as Mr. Baggins does. As soon as they Hollywood it, as soon as they Hollywoodify it, if you will, it doesn't have that same sense of adventure. It doesn't have that same connection to the book that I feel in the first movie. Yeah, but it's, but it, but it's still a good series it's still a good movie series and it still connects to the Lord of the Rings pretty well, but it definitely, definitely makes me worried about what they're going to do in the last 51 pages and how they're going to turn that into a feature length film. So even with all the good things it's got going for it, I can't give it a nine, not in good faith, but I, I don't know if I can really drop it super low because it's, got good things going for it i'm really kind of torn um i'm just gonna go with my gut i I really am and i know that i'm drawing this out but (laughs) i think we're actually gonna end up flipping our scores really i think our scores are flipped i gave uh unexpected journey a nine and you gave it a 7.5 you're giving desolation of smaug a nine i'm gonna have to give it a 7.5 wow and you know,
3: I going into this, I felt like, especially after your tweet, I knew you, I knew you weren't gonna hate on the movie, but I knew you, you seemed a bit more critical of it going in. So I was thinking, yeah. like, it really seems like we're we're uh, you know we're 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 gonna be flipped on this. You know, you're you're you really love the first one. I was kind of you know less so on that, but I really love this one and you know you i'm of course you i think you love all these movies but at the same time you're a bit more critical of this one and it's, oh, just, for it's sure, it's fascinating that we kind of <laughs> landed on on different things yeah, I mean, just we, see how we land on the last one you know
2: yeah yeah now now we're going to really have to see like the deciding factor of what the overall scores are going to be is going to be this third movie uh, don't get me wrong i mean like i said the the casting the storytelling this the 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 choreography of the fight scenes the character development for people like bilbo and Balan and thorin and smaug and and the introduction of of bard the bowman there's some good sequences in there there really are but i just am not crazy about the deviations that they take and um it, it and i think it's really fascinating that you know the movie that is most respectful to the book ends up getting the lower score from the cinema fan And then the one that is more cinematically viewer inclined is the one that gets the higher score from you. And then the book fan gives it a little bit of a lower score. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast, you know, Uh, when when you're looking at something that has a book that is set as the precedent, it affects the way you view the movie, whether you've read the book or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious what other people's thoughts are on this. If you've got a planet score, then uh, go ahead and send it to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IPC Podcast, or you can talk to us personally about your opinions on the movie and what kind of ratings you would want to give it. You can find Ben on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Ben Hart with no e. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram just at Zach underscore DFW. Um, I man. I'm really curious to see what people would think of of these two movies and uh, Mm -hmm. the the, the opinions that I may value more than some of the others would include our patrons, the ones who support us on a regular basis, on a very regular basis, helping us out, taking care of certain bills and obligations like paying for our hosting site Podbean and taking care of movie tickets on occasion and uh, working on some expansion things that we're trying to do here with the show uh ripc being one of them our r-rated podcast you yep. we can't do it without the help of our patrons so a big thank you to uh to joey mays katie horn jake damon rachel perry dan grievous and parker ott you guys help keep the lights on for us and help keep us going so we really appreciate all that you do indeed yeah you guys rock <laughs> Uh was that like a mountain joke like Erebor, you guys rock was it was it an arkenstone joke that was an arkenstone joke yeah. wasn't it yeah
3: yeah i'll just take that yeah
2: sure yeah. sure it was oh by the way uh, george
3: in the chat our good friend george he gives it a 9 out of 10
2: he agrees with me interesting nice choice James. i'm I may, be, I may be in the minority here. We'll see. <laughs> if you're interested in becoming a patron, you can do so at patron.podbean.com forward slash podcast. If you want to follow us, you can find us on iTunes and Google Play, but the best place to find us is podcast.podbean.com. We've also got previous episodes on StarWarsUnderworld.com. They are proud partners of the IPC podcast, so be sure to go check them out for Star Wars news, rumors, release dates, and other information. And a reminder... We've got merchandise. Yeah. We are on TeePublic. Tpublic.com slash user slash podcast. We've got shirts. We've got hoodies. And it's getting to be hoodie weather, folks. The temperatures are changing. So go find yourself one of those or maybe a long-sleeve IPC shirt that'll last you all winter long.
3: Yes.
2: Well... We got all that stuff out of the way. I guess it's just time for that one last famous segment Let's that just got, get huh, it buddy? out of the way, I
3: suppose. We might as well.
2: We'll do it because we have to. Mm. We're contractually obligated. No, we're not. But we're going to do it anyway. Ladies and gents, get out your hashtags and start putting them in the chat if you're listening live like George is. Or put it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like the places we just mentioned, and everything else in between, because it's time... For the two hundred and somethingeth time, I want to say two hundred and tenth time. Yep, two hundred. It's time. Well, I mean, this is episode two ten, but I still don't remember if we actually did it on our very first episode.
3: Yeah, and I know we didn't do it on like
2: Jedi Pod, so mm-hmm. so it kind of so it's like eh, the, the two hundred and eighth, maybe two hundred and it might be like the two hundred and seventh because we didn't do it the first episode, we didn't do it for Jedi Pod, and the guys didn't do it during the Fraser episode. Then I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's over 200 and we're going to do it again. And it's a really good one this time. So get out your hashtags for hashtag BBQ Watch.
1: Barbecue. Barbecue. b Barbecue. Barbecue.
0: B-b-b-barbecue. barbecue it. Barbecue it. Barbecue it. barbecue Barbecue sauce. Barbecue sauce. b Barbecue. 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 barbecue.
1: barbecue watch
2: Oh yeah. There we go. Man, that one just never gets old. No it doesn't. <laughs> uh, speaking of never gets old, this is kind of a uh kind of kind of, kind of an ageless topic because uh, it takes a really really long time for these creatures to age and I'm I'm actually kind of curious where you're going with this because this is a this is a fire breathing creature. Yeah.
3: Okay. So I think this can be taken multiple ways. Okay. Because I put in the chat, I put in the notes, BB dragon BBQ. Right. And of course, you can say, well, well, dragon BBQ to dragon. Like how how do you, how would you smoke a dragon? I think when you're dealing with a creature that is a fire breathing creature. I don't know if necessarily it's worth, um, you know, cooking him. I think maybe let him do the cooking.
2: Okay, so I I'm see thinking where you're coming from because I mean he's already got the fire
3: built in. Boom, there you go. So I'm thinking you can either trick him like like the 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 the, the dwarves in this movie they tricked Smaug into helping them and. Yes. When they
2: when he lit the forge for them. I thought that was so cool. So you
3: could do it like that, maybe somehow if you're if you're if you're as clever enough, you could trick a, a dragon into cooking something for you, just just blowing on it. Or you maybe maybe you have a lot of gold. And you say, Hey Mr Dragon, Mr. Smaug, um, could you cook something for me? I'll give you all this gold. This gold over I'll here? pay you to host my barbecue for me. Here's a mountain full of gold. Dude. You can have that and cook my food for me.
2: Dude, why don't people do that in the Middle Ages? That would be a hell of a story. Heck yeah. Like like, like these high society, middle-aged people, like, like the people of the Middle Ages, not middle-aged like in their 40s, but like these people of the Middle Ages that are trying to one-up each other with their different dinner parties and festivals and stuff, and this one super rich king gets the idea that he's going to put all his money into two things, the food and the dragon. And he just pays, like, a hoard of his gold to the dragon in order to host the, the the kingdom's best
3: dinner party. Or maybe if you're, like, powerful enough, or maybe if you're Donkey from Shrek,
2: you have a dragon on a leash, <laughs> and you just have... Oh, uh, she's not on a list. She's more like on a whip in that series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, sorry. You walked right into that yep, one. Yep, <laughs> yep, I did. Now, I, did. I will say, in Game of Thrones... There is a keyword that is spoken in a, in a foreign language called High Valyrian, oh. and whenever the the owner of the dragons um, speaks this word, it sets them off and causes them to breathe fire. Oh, like she's she's got them she's got them trained on command, and when she gives the word Dracaris they burst out into flames. Wow. So maybe you just keep a dragon handy, and then we, when you need your food burned, you just say the magic word, and boom, you've got you've got you've got roasted whatever sitting right in front of you in a matter of minutes.
3: I would assume somewhere in this universe, there's uh there's a dude, maybe a giant or maybe a dwarf, who knows, that his his main source of income is rent a dragon is just he just like hey need a dragon uh give me some gold to keep the dragon happy and then I'm happy
2: well i mean you'd have to pay the finders fee and you'd have to pay enough to actually warrant the use of the dragon so i mean there's there's definitely the, the that kind of possibility out there but you'd have to have a really good relationship with the dragon and be able to offer it a lot of gold in order to be like it's agent for guest appearances, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That would be interesting to see, though. Man, we're coming up with some really great ideas on how to use your dragon <laughs> instead of one, how to train it. One day I'll get to utilize these ideas, maybe. How to rent your dragon. You know, honestly, I'm going to take that idea of the dragon-themed dinner party, and I'm going to try and write, like, a fan fiction and maybe maybe try and post it somewhere, <laughs> like on my blog or my website or something. Like that would <laughs> That fiction. would be really I funny. I love it, I love it. I'm going to take that idea and run with it. But speaking of run, I think we're going to have to run and call it an evening. This was a fun one, dude, and I'm really looking forward to next week as well when we actually conclude this trilogy talking about the Battle of the Five Armies. It should be interesting. Oh,
3: it's going to be a blast. I'm looking forward to it. I've enjoyed these movies so far. I'm getting my further education on the L-O-T-R fandom. I'm getting deeper into this stuff. And uh, I'm really enjoying the Hobbit films. I I didn't know what to think going into this because I knew that, you know, they're, you know, different in their prequel movies. But they're also like a lot of people don't have a lot of good things to say about them. And, you know, I don't I don't take, you know, that stuff too seriously personally because there's a lot of movies out there that I like that a lot of people don't like. Um, And so far. Yeah. So far. I've been impressed, and I don't. I mean, of course, I'm ignorant. I haven't seen or read the books. I'm not that into Lord of the Rings, so you know, maybe I'm missing a whole lot of stuff. But overall, just watching them as films, as a complete noob when it comes to this kind of stuff, I've enjoyed it so far. So I'm definitely looking forward to the Battle of the Five Armies how they how they defeat Smaug, assuming and uh, seeing how all this works out. Hopefully.
2: Well, I mean taking it as it is rather than as it should be is probably one of the better ways to enjoy the Hobbit trilogy anyway mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. So you're you're getting probably the best presentation of the Hobbit adventures because your opinion's not tainted by the book. Yeah. So I'm, I mean I'm it, there's yeah, there there's pros and cons to every viewing opportunity, but coming into it from a purely cinematic perspective is probably going to help you enjoy the movies. Rather than, you know, seeing what it isn't, you're enjoying what it is. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to talking about it next time, but I think that is going to have to do it for this time. I'm going to call it. We're putting this one in the books. Episode 210 is now officially complete. For Benjamin Hart, I'm Zach Arnold. Thank you for tuning in with us. We hope that you'll tune in next week for episode 211 of the IPC podcast talking about the Battle of the Five Armies. We'll see you then. But until then, we just want to leave you with this. Closing thought. Love comes in all shapes and sizes. And we would love to see you next week right here on IPC. But until then, good night, everyone.
0: Oh, misty eye of the mountain below. Keep careful watch of my brother's soul. And should this sky be filled with Fire and smoke Keep watching over your suns If this is to end we shall all burn together Watch the flames climb high, high Into the night Calling out Father Oh, stand by and we will Watch the flames burn Over and on The mountainside And if we should die we should all die together Raise a glass of wine For the last time Cold our Father, Prepare as we will Watch the flames burn open on the mountainside Desolation comes upon the sky Now I see fire Inside the mountain, I see fire. Burning the trees, and I see fire. Hollowing soul I see fire. Blood in the breeze, and I hope that you remember. Too close to the flame, calling out, Father, oh, hold fast and we will watch the flames burn open on the mountain side. Desolation comes upon the sky, and I see fire inside the mountain. I see fire. Burning the trees, I see fire.